everybody, Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says for you. It's a quiet Friday Arvo in Preston. I've got a hot chocolate here. Feeling pretty cozy. This interview is a chat with Ella O'Keefe, who is the author of the new book, Slowlier, which just came out from Cordite Press. It's another in the Cordite Books stable, which has a wonderful selection of poets published through it. And yeah, I was really excited to talk with Ella because I'm super, super interested in the way that she puts her poems together. So we start off by talking a little bit about the book launch and what that was like here in Melbourne. We talk about this idea of slowness and slowness versus quote unquote mindfulness. And then I get Ella to read a poem just so we can talk about how she actually writes. As I said, I'm really interested in that and what her poetic concerns are, what she's trying to get out with her poems. Ella won the Judith Wright back in 2016 with a poem of hers called Alkaway. So I asked her in this chat whether there was any pressure to publish the book quickly after she won that award. And we talk about the process of writing it, editing it, and getting it published. And even though Ella's path to publication is individual and specific to her, I do think there is some useful and good advice in here for people who are thinking about writing their own book, putting their own collection together. So I hope you get something out of that. There's also at one point a fairly obvious intrusion from my cat. Apologies for that one. I really hope you enjoy this chat with Ella O'Keefe. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming up to Preston on a rainy, rainy night. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, how are you doing so far this year? <laughs> what a question. <laughs> I'm starting with I the get, hard questions. Yeah, I know. I guess. And then we can yeah, move to the poetry. Probably better than, probably better than this time last year. Mm. Um, I don't know what to say. It was like, what, what even was last year? Yeah. <laughs> like... A year got erased. Um, yeah. No, yeah, not bad. Going along. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Going along is a... I would agree with that. I'd relate to that. Enjoying uh, seeing people... Seeing poetry be read. Yeah. In places, not on screens. Yeah. That's, that's been an improvement. Well, your launch of Slowlier which was really just a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, a bit over? Yeah, a bit over, maybe two. End of February. End I of guess February, yeah. We're sort of almost end of April. Yeah. So, yeah, that launch was really significant, I think, for everybody who was there because we, it was just after restrictions had – I can't even remember, but I know that it, it felt tenuous – I guess it did it almost got cancelled because of the snap five-day lockdown that's felt like it felt like the best laid plans of outdoor venues were (laughs) were were thrown into disarray as happened a lot of times as as may continue to happen Mm. but uh yeah it was nice that it managed to go ahead as planned Mm. at the time that it was planned to have that's not a sentence (laughs) yeah it's nice that it was able to go ahead in the end yeah as intended yeah, like I was 
chatting to people there you know people i hadn't seen people i had forgotten existed you know people that i was just is that like, all it took out there? <laughs> no, nothing personal <laughs> i'm just very self-involved um, yeah no it was like oh my god you know this is this is a whole community that has just been lying dormant for you know a year and then we all got to come together at that launch and it was it was funny and it was you know just very beautiful and there was a guy in lycra who walked through a couple times and yes there was a bike rider bike rider yeah sort of in that out outdoor events in blurring the lines between kind of public totally public space and and event space yeah yeah um and it was a full moon so everything was oh yeah i hadn't Gosh, I didn't even factor that in. I'm happy that people enjoyed it. I mean, I I was, no, I enjoyed it too, but I was terribly nervous until after the reading was over. Yeah, yeah. Possibly, possibly nerves heightened. I mean, it's, it's always nervy to read, to perform, to stand up in front of people, but, but also the, uh, the relearning how to be social creatures in person. Yep. Well, that's kind of what I mean. Like those those interactions on that day I felt like I was an alien learning how to like say you know say hello to people and stuff like that and be in a group like yeah I think yeah a lot of people in those early weeks I guess that wasn't really the early weeks we'd sort of had a bit of summer to see one another a bit more but you just end up saying it's so good to see you it's just so good to see you but then (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I certainly didn't spend my on and off lockdown year uh, really getting into intellectual pursuits or uh, finding it particularly easy to to write or uh, read deeply or concentrate deeply or be creative. So I didn't feel like I was overflowing with fascinating anecdotes or conversations. So all you could just say was, you know, it's nice to see these these bodies in this place, these faces. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because, yeah, that kind of echoes what a lot of people I've spoken to on the podcast and, and off, you know, just like to really struggle to concentrate and um, and get anything done. But now that we're now that this book is out in the world, I would like to know what that feels like for you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Can you tell I don't like <laughs> thinking about these things too much? No, I mean, it, it's um, it's good. It's good. It was kind of in saying that I didn't do anything last year. I mean, I, you know, whatever, got, got through the year, uh, worked my job. And I guess the other thing I did was work on the edits of this book, mm-hmm. which was a funny, again, like a funny time to be not necessarily a bad time to be editing although there was for me editing and writing are intertwined like it wasn't just taking out words it was writing new words it was writing a couple of new poems um from that less stimulated space that we were all in what am I trying to say that's what I was doing last year and it was it was also, you know, like, you know how the pandemic started and then there were quite quickly all of these kind of grants for artists to go for to respond to the pandemic. And there was this feeling of like you were meant, you were immediately meant to 
process this experience and know what to say about it while you were just trying to um, live through it. And I guess that made me very conscious of the fact that the most of the poems in this book, like it's about, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years of writing. So some of them feel quite, they feel quite far away. Mm. And I guess when you have, when history happens to you, which it's whatever, it's always happening to us, but when history happens to you in this big way, it was sort of funny dealing with, you know, bits of my own art that were from a completely different time and had Mm. no connection uh, to what was actually happening. And then there was this sort of feeling of like, oh, I should be, I should be responding in my art, but I was like, should I? I don't think so. And how? And Mm. yeah. Did you ever have a moment doing the editing where you were like, I don't think I can use these poems now? Or were they always? Um, no, I don't, I don't think I had that. I just, it just felt very conscious. I felt conscious of the distance and the fact that, yeah, just things not feeling maybe as current or as fresh, but maybe that's just editing and the time mm. of a book mm. to be out in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely know what you mean. Like, it's hard to keep in your mind, like, just because it's an old poem to you doesn't mean, like, yeah, the reader won't know that necessarily. But but I guess I did, you know, given the title, Slowly and also the nature of the book, the introduction talks about writing with the waste products of capitalism. And, yeah, I really want to get into that idea, but... I guess just broadly, like, why is it important to be slow? What what do you gain by not rushing? I mean, this might sound like a really obvious question, <laughs> but I think it's important to spell out because I think that's the, the book works on you in this slow way. When I read it, I really felt it kind of like chipping away at these assumptions and these expectations that I had about what I sort of wanted a poem to to do and say and be and but it, and it happened slowly it was it was interesting I mean I guess I chose that title I liked the clumsiness of it I don't mean to invoke some kind of um mindfulness in saying it's slow mm. um it's more like resistance or refusal or clumsiness mm-hmm. or slackness yeah I mean I suppose there's a kind of acknowledgement of a, a slow comprehension maybe it's my own slowness <laughs> the slowness with which I process and comprehend and think about the world but also I guess I'm aware that my poems aren't are often you know use disjunction and aren't representational in a in a kind of, I don't want to say that representational poetry is bad. They just, I, I find it hard to write good representational poems. So they tend to be a little bit more abstract or the experience is processed in this way for me. Um, so there is an awareness of, yeah, that it's not giving you a quick or instant um, way of reading. But I, I don't want to say any like, oh, you have to read my book slowly or, you know, you have to read experimental poetry slowly. Like, I mean, maybe that's true of some poetry, but I think you can flick through it and 
I don't know. Like, I don't want to dictate how people read it, but I guess, yeah, for me, the slowlier is sort of deliberately clumsy, refusing to be optimized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but not necessarily yeah. mindful. I don't think I'm necessarily a slow, measured person who writes slow, measured, careful poetry. Mm. Yep, yep. Yeah, I totally get what you mean in terms of like that distinction there between um there's this podcast called the slow home podcast that I used to be deeply into for like six weeks and it was just such a this is just a total aside but there was the the host and her husband did the podcast and it was all about how they had you know minim minimized everything they were minimalists and they were these you know slowness kind of advocates and they were like we don't have much in our schedule we don't have many possessions we live in the blue mountains mm. and it's all very great but then like there was a whole drama around it as well but like the thing it, obviously it got out of control because i guess what that is is kind of a it's just another facet of this idea of like optimize your life you know it's just another control strategy and and i feel like this book does do that like resisting of um coming to easy conclusions finding you know yeah neat neatness um it's refusing that maybe it would be good to read one and then sure. we can like dig into the actual craft of it because that's kind of what i want to get to most uh this is the one that you requested my request <laughs> moquette an excess of tenderness in a small padded bumper and two upholstered bulges slightly wider than a pelvis adjacent to the sliding doors cushion our jostling forms I give thanks to thoughtful inklings, providence of detached bustle to slouch on, concessions to our delicacy. The carriage is a soft passage for conveying bodies at speed. Of course, you think of friends who have recently given birth and the objects willing to receive us. Cushions at once cradle and repel the rider. A silhouette takes a photograph to supersede her memory. Not so much image as notation ripped ribbons, or a seed pearl of blood at the page corner. Outside, all textures become ruggy. The loot, cut pile. Nauseous eyes trace moving patterns with the risk of dazzle. Seated upon egregious stamps, franchise livery in the shrinking coach, safety coated for regular cleaning. Boucle, uncut pile. Tuffed or voided, shouting, commuter holiday, or computer error in a slapdash palette. Moquette imitates something more luxurious, silky gear at livestock prices, an absence of flat surfaces, resists stains and hides particulates, surprising occurrences. 27-inch standard, 11 kilometres of yarn in four colours, loaded into the matrix, Open source instrumental music accompanies the cheerful behind the scenes of industry video and watching it, you too feel the rosy glow of being gently bathed in flame retardant solution. 
Mercado logos as an ornament, stiffened with cane and later built from carpet-like artifice, designed to draw the eye from the courtly scandal, those rumours of just what her padded skirts concealed. Did she move the medieval poet to pen the triumph of the ladies, a kind of riposte overly concerned with matters of virtue, and how being female in missionary grants views of celestial bodies, probably a punchbowl bore, Perhaps the convent was okay after all. Prior to her banishment, she understood displays, decolletage, and how to fake silk velvet. I guess I would just love to hear about the writing of this poem, any of the poems in the book. Like, I tried, I've tried now to like steer away from asking process questions because I feel like maybe it's invasive or, I don't know, like seems like an obvious thing but with this book I just the whole time I was just like how was this written (laughs) how did it come into being that's what I wanted to know I mean I guess there's an element of research but I don't mean research in a in a dedicated way to find something out I just mean what we all do like surfing the internet and seeing interesting videos and reading about processes. I mean, I've never really, it's a bold claim to make, but I suppose a lot of these poems are written while I myself was engaged in various forms of research. So I suppose maybe the form of researching, of going out and gathering um, bits of this and that little snippets is kind of a way of working that I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. Some poems are about an experience or an emotion, and that's the starting point. But I do, th- I think I write, I think it tends to be line, line by line. Um, and there definitely are, I guess I could, I haven't, I haven't wanted to do it but I could go back and probably identify certain recurring concerns in my work which obviously just things that my brain is fixated on Mm. which but yeah I guess the the little having to having to write the little introduction as you do for these um cordite books makes you do makes you think a little bit about that but it you know in that poem I guess as a sort of an interest with historical tropes of femininity as a kind of feminist concern with fabrics and garments and industrial production, the kind of, I don't know, a kind of wonder and incomprehension at how the objects of the modern world that we're in come to exist. Mm. I think I was reading about the fabric on, on bus seats Mm. (laughs) (laughs) see like how do you even get there that's that's my question i suppose it's like how do you even think to look that up um how do you not (laughs) well this this is the thing right like there's a curiosity that i feel like is embedded in in all of the poems that is just incredibly admirable when i was thinking about like how to frame this question i was sort of thinking to myself like what why not just write about self and experience why not just write about uh 
you know, the beautiful things or sad things or things that, that makes one angry. Like, what does it mean to resist all that and to think instead about like the fabric on bus scenes, <laughs> which is which is like arguably, I don't know, if you think about how that's made and what it what it takes to make it and make it like resistant to hundreds of thousands of people sitting on it all the time like that's also important right I don't know is there ever a day where you're just like geez I just want to write a like a a love sonnet (laughs) (laughs) uh not a love sonnet no um I mean never say never um I think I do write about things that make me angry I think I write about the state of the world in my own way and I think I write about I don't know I think that I think there's a sort of I I worry sometimes it's overdone but maybe it's not even legible to anyone but me um there there is joy and beauty and and nostalgia maybe maybe there's too much of a of a dichotomy being set up about a nostalgia of how things were versus how they are now that is a bit overplayed in some of my work but yeah, I don't know. That there's probably like a a psychological reason for resisting <laughs> making the self highly legible. Um, I don't. I don't think it's impersonal poetry, but no, I don't either. Yeah, no, definitely don't take that from what I'm saying. Um, I think I have a little personal pet theory that we expect the self to be highly legible when it's a female voice or a voice that we perceive to be female. We're like, ooh what's what's your deal what are you going to show me about yourself yeah and these are poems that they're highly personal it's just that it's the view from you outwards I guess I don't I don't really quite know how to say it but it's like catching a bus sometimes I'm like I wish I could take a photo of everything I'm seeing and just make like a little movie of that and these poems feel a bit like that the object that is invoked in the introduction is Landsat 5, which is a, a satellite that kind of well outlived its um, expected lifespan and took a bunch of photos of things like probably better that you explain it to me. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's really fascinating kind of framing. Uh, well, that I think you're talking about um, Juliana Spar's introduction yeah, where yeah. she so that's in one poem in the book called Landsat 5 right right um, so that I guess that was in that poem but not necessarily um, you know I think she makes it and probably a convincing argument that that's a way not probably she makes a convincing and well-written <laughs> eloquent and generous um, you know, argument that that's a way to think about my work I don't think that that but I don't think you know that's like that's a critical reading that she brought to the work mm-hmm. um, on reading the manuscript. I don't think it was in my mind that the whole book was functioning the way that that poem functioned. Mm. But I think, yeah, my interest, I mean, my interest in the satellite was, again, it was just the the strangeness of the things that we do, but also the images um, that, the, that Landsat 5 produced of kind of the world from earth from space and particularly kind of um, agricultural and industrial uses of land and the kind of um, unsettling 
surreal, almost beautiful, but not really beautiful because they're kind of concerning to um, nature of those images. The whole project of of a camera, of a satellite circling the earth, trying to photograph it, the duration of that. Mm. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Somebody told me um, after reading this book that it made them think of the word logistics and I was in preparation for coming here. I was talking to Tim, my partner, a bit about my writing, which is not, as a rule, something I really like to do, to not, not talk to my partner, talk about my writing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, we were talking about, yeah, this sort of interest in systems, I suppose, but it's like I'm fascinated by systems, but it's sort of because also because I have so much trouble understanding them myself so they seem (laughs) I don't have that like system kind of logical brain necessarily it does you know I yeah moving through the world in a in a slow or clumsy (laughs) or something way um but but observing um the power of different systems and knowing that it's important to understand to try and understand them in order to understand the forces that are shaping the world, but also finding them incomprehensible or enraging or maybe just bizarre. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I really relate to that sort of being mystified by the processes and it makes me think of like, I I think we're about the same age, so maybe you grew up with this video too, but that video, that um, Sesame Street video of the crayons getting made, the orange crayons getting made in a factory oh if you... i don't know that one but definitely like pl- the right age to have experienced lots of um play school videos where they would go behind the window and then it would be you know just like yeah uh, there was one about a biscuit factory and that i remember that stayed with me for quite a while and yeah. for a while as a child i was like i wanted to be a biscuit maker purely based on having watched this two minute play school like biscuit factory video watching the machines dollop the jam and finding that fascinating I guess yeah Yeah. I totally get it um yeah it seems like magic to me as well yeah um it is magic I mean it's magic but it's also like work labor mm -hmm. um energy (laughs) consumption production yep 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 it's both yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of humor in the book as well i think that's like super important to state outright i'm glad you um, say that because when i have had to read a couple of the poems together i just think oh i'm such a sad sack i'm so cranky and grumpy <laughs> and complaining that's funny like i didn't feel any of that um i i felt well humor more than anything but also just a fascination like I don't know if this is a comparison that is, I don't know how you feel about it, but yeah, it it seems like you've got the same kind of fascination that Pam Brown does with like the way that language just gets like plonked out in the world and then we just have to deal with it. And it's just so silly. Um, I'm trying to think of the one about, well, Alkaway, the one that won the, the Judith Wright has some incredible, where was it? There's one line in there. I'm going to find it. The therapeutic power of water. 
something like that just sits out there in the world and I feel like by highlighting it by bringing it into the context of a poem you're kind of saying like look how silly this is (laughs) I mean yeah I think that line was actually uh, I can't I couldn't say for sure now maybe I maybe I messed with it but I think it was copy stolen from you know advertising material about an expensive water filter Mm. the Alcoa yeah the Alcoa I looked it up and I was like oh an Alcoa is a thing okay um yeah but yeah the humor there's so much humor in it um one of my favorite bits is from the, from a poem called Violet Crumble. What did Monsieur Sandals actually do? Their myth outlives their mechanism. Again, that's like from deep in my childhood, just like people who had Monsieurs were like really fancy. <laughs> like they had the good shit. But did those shoes do anything? Who knows? It seemed like they could cure anything. I guess it's, um, yeah, it's as much the humor of language as the humor of 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 products and advertising yeah <laughs> the kind yeah of... yeah which is which is the stuff that's all around us and it's yeah i guess what i'm trying to get at it with all this is like it is sort of faintly ridiculous in a way that in so much poetry tries to resist that stuff tries to push it aside and go no no no, no i'm not going to deal with the fact that like i've just you know, seen a million ads and, um, you know, autoplay ads on YouTube and billboards and like, um, something on my coffee cup and whatever, like the whole world is just like talking, screaming at me all the time, but I'm going to block all that out and I'm going to write about a turtle or something like that, you know, like that's nice if you can do it, but it, it does, there is sort of, I guess a weird dishonesty in that, like a, well, at least an editing of the world that's like, None of that, just this. And I guess this, yeah, these poems seem like the opposite of that. Yeah, I would, I would say there's, there is probably, there are definitely poetic traditions that I'm, and and poets that have been aware to, you know, resisting the kind of, um, I don't know what it, like, quiet lyrical um, mode of expression in favor of writing something that's about the everyday world as you experience that as a subject in whatever time you're living in. So I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree, but I also would say that I'm, I I don't think my work is, is unique in doing that either in using found language or um, kind of the banal experiences that we have in our lives as taking that as the, um, subject matter rather than trying to kind of whatever you know go off in a garret and (laughs) (laughs) hallucinate or um where is my garret i I mean i swear i ordered one (laughs) garrets are in short supply (laughs) (laughs) um i'm wondering just to kind of underscore this this point about humor if i could ask you to read one other um basic hut methodology oh yeah I've got to find it. Basic heart methodology. Take your platform boots off, Kevin. You've killed a deer to make your point. But our tea and biscuit sensibilities will cope. We forgive you. You're charming. Hiding from your vanity. Likening molten glass to tartar flat. 
In the fresh peat, you hammer a sign, not Hobbit Town. It's cute. Then later tell the production crew, sternly, this is not aspirational. This is economical. Your Marxism 101 plaything soliloquies about the means of production while you go on dung safari. Afterwards, the gang pretends to piss in a bucket. You call the result a manly amount. 150 years of Britain's industrial history at the bottom of a hackney canal, which swallows your magnet with an erotic slurp. There you go, all doe-eyed, banging on the shed roof, but we're weary of plumbing double entendre. Your bespoke aggrandisement, Kevin and the engineer boiler kettle. Shall I play mother? That curve came from a tree, gunpowder tamped into the trunk, a certain massive quality. Boy with a simple dream to own a patch of woodland, you hasten to enclose your dwelling. Your friends show how they feel by building a straw effigy and lighting it with flaming arrows. Thank you. Thanks for reading that one. Um, I when Whenever I read this one and when you read it at the launch, I am always just thinking about Kevin Rudd in this poem. Like the Kevin <laughs> in the poem is Kevin Rudd to me. <laughs> yeah, which is fine. Yeah. It can be. It can be. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I was, the last interview I did here, we were talking about the, uh, the poems making the point that that he thought that the avant-garde had a had been delivered a fatal dose of seriousness and i think this book kind of disproves that i don't know if you consider yourself avant-garde i don't know if i would make such claims that's a big (laughs) word to like throw at someone but you know what i mean like yeah there can be fun in experimentalism like totally yeah Silliness. Yeah, silliness. Silliness. Uh, there can be sensuousness. There can be totally personal, relatable moments and experiences. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know all this already, but your pet theory about, you know, the limits of what kinds of expression get put onto poetry by women or women identified writers there's been thought and writing about this the kind of the double exclusion of the I don't like to use these words but you know the feminist experimental poet whatever that means but it's sort of like you know in 70s feminism for example um, really kind of vindicated a mode of expression that was um, highly that was representational about the experiences and lives of women like a kind of social realism and if you were you know someone who was writing poetry who was a radical feminist but you didn't want your writing you didn't want to write kind of from your life in that particular way you were sort of seen as not feminist but then at the same time excluded from the kind of excluded in the history of you know modernism from the kind of masculine male dominated macho um history of modernism this Mm. is all very broad brush strokes and you know obviously none of these categories actually hold when you when you examine them further but um that yeah i don't know that's (laughs) do you think any of that still functions now i i don't know if uh, i mean Possibly. I'm the wrong person to ask to make broad claims about <laughs> these things in, in some situations, maybe. I mean, I, 
I definitely think there's been a renewal of like a return or maybe it never went away. But as the theories and thinking behind what we might think of as identity politics have um, become more widespread and entered into the mainstream, there's like a celebration of the individual and maybe in some cases that translates to a kind of veneration of poetry which is about um, the personal experience but at the same time there's good reason for that to happen too and there's plenty of personal experiences and voices that have not been part of the mainstream or not even mainstream just the history of poetry that um, need that need to be there but yeah, I do feel like there is as well a kind of, I don't want to say overdetermined, but definitely, I, I, I couldn't say what whether it's more or less now. Mm. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's lots of different probably scenes of poetry that I'm um, not as connected into. Um, but I don't know, yeah, I don't know if it holds as much in terms of for women writers particularly, but I guess, yeah, there's any kind of marginalized voice is often expected to only express itself creatively through through offering itself up rather than you know playing with language or experimenting or something like that and you know i think you can do both but i yeah there is i i guess that that would be the crux of it that that any voice that is other and maybe we're still in a moment where it's like other than whatever male white <laughs> voice um, might have more demands on it to to invoke the personal yeah it certainly feels that way when I read collections by people whose you know whose voices seem like a new to poetry how much pressure has this person been under to represent not only their own experience but the experience of everybody within the you know the perception of their community that kind of feels like a huge unfair pressure to to bring to bear on you know a book but um, yeah i don't know it is it is kind of fascinating to think about that change um and how much it's changing all the time as well which is really really cool to see um yeah i know we said before we started recording that talking about you know favorite poets was not not the greatest question but i do wonder if there's any poets that you read as you were writing the poems in this book or just coming to writing in general any poets at all that kind of unlocked it for you like gave you a sense of permission or what's possible or there definitely were the first time i read barbara guest uh, probably would have been when I was an undergrad and I wrote an honours thesis about her work and then I went on to um, write about her work for my PhD and so I've probably I probably I spent you know well over a decade kind of closely engaged with her work um, and I definitely think there are early poems of mine that like where her influence more obviously in the form in in how they're written like i don't know if you've read if you know I've never guest read work guest, so yeah, <laughs> this is interesting yeah um and you know i think her work taught me a lot about um 
well, about radical disjunction, um, about, but also about the visual and image and the power of image. Because even though we've talked a lot about, you know, my poems being non-representational, etc., um, I think they are probably kind of packed with images in a way. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I definitely, obviously, Barbara Guest has been like an and will continue to be along an ongoing kind of influence and and I it would be churlish to say that she wasn't she wasn't somehow like the reading of her work um and and the other poets that I was writing about in my PhD um but then there are lots of yeah lots of Australian poets who I think you don't have to scratch too hard (laughs) on the surface of my, my poetry to see you know the influence of the writing, you know, Pam Brown, Gig Ryan, Kate Lilly, Michael Farrell. I also would say that uh, there's been groups of poets, uh, I guess particularly in Melbourne, although also also uh, when I was living in Sydney, but there was, you know, there was a group of poets um, who, there was a regular poetry group when I sort of first moved to this city, that didn't involve reading it was a poetry group to read other people's poetry not our own but it would it sort of you know you have that experience with people and you end up being interested in their work as well and so obviously those I've turned your question into something more about poetic communities but I just Mm. I would I guess I would say that that is also like um and uh I have um also sort of written collaboratively a few times um with uh a number of poet friends mm-hmm. <laughs> with Lee Muddle and Sean Vate and Elena Gomez and Emily Stewart and Melody Paloma and I think we we all have although we yeah we've we have literally like written together um a number of times but also just writing alongside those poets mm. is like a cherished part of of my poetic practice that's really cool yeah I love that I also wanted to ask about so we talked about Alkaway which is the poem that won the Judith Wright in 2016 and this might be a silly question I'm, I'm not sure but did you feel after you won that prize did you feel any pressure at that point like I got to get a book out now, like a full length collection to follow that up or no, that's good. (laughs) I think, I think that's, that's the the title of slowlier is also, you know, um, well, I don't think I could ever be a highly productive poet just because of the rate at which I write. And maybe I just have a bad work ethic, but, um, yeah, it was it was also in I guess maybe just to myself against the idea of uh, focusing on outputs and products and focusing on yeah that sort of stuff like not that not that being productive is bad <laughs> for people that write a lot but it was more like taking a really long time not <laughs> giving myself permission to take a really long time to uh, get my first book out. Yeah. I mean, that just seems really courageous to me. Like, I just 
or can, lazy? Well, I don't know. Like, I, I think that there is, I, f- I feel like we're at totally opposite ends of the spectrum on this, which is really interesting because like I felt so, I put so much pressure on myself from really early on from when I first started writing to like write all the time, publish a lot and get to the point where I could get a book out like as soon as as humanly possible and I'm indebted you know forever to Bonnie Cassidy for sort of taking me aside regularly and being like there's no rush like who are you racing against kind of thing um there's no uh there's no benefit to doing it this way in fact it's quite detrimental and if you rush to publish something and you get it accepted then you've got to live with it out in the world in that form that maybe could have been better if you'd have given it another six or 12 months, you know. But I just was like not – well, I mean, I, I did hear it eventually, but it took a long time. I mean, I think you always have to live with whatever your first book is. So whatever, whatever – whether it – whenever you get it – whenever you get it out there, whenever you get it done. Mm. But I don't know that – the stakes the stakes for publishing poetry remain the same whether you do it fast or slow like <laughs> yeah. you might win a prize or oh, not well <laughs> but that's kind of it it's right not... like that's that's the you know you'll sell some books and maybe you'll get some critical recognition maybe the yeah. end yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. well you'll have the you'll have the object you'll be able to put it on your bookshelf look mm. at it swap yeah. it with other poets yeah. but yeah, I mean, who do we do this for? Why do we do this? Like, what what is the advantage to doing it fast? I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I maybe this is a, a good note to end on because um, I, I guess I wanted to bring that up because I wonder if now having put this book out through Cordite, if you have any advice or, like, experience – Anything to share about the experience of bringing the collection together, getting it published? I've been talking to someone recently who's thinking about getting their first book together. And it's been really interesting to have that conversation because it's like, I feel as if nothing I say is all that useful, actually. (laughs) I'm kind of like, everyone's path is really different. And that feels, I don't know. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, is there anything that, that you've taken away from this experience that's that you might want to share with someone on the other side of it. Yeah, it's hard. I think I have a pretty low ambition <laughs> publishing strategy uh, engagement with poetry. Um, and not to say low ambition in terms of what I wish or hope or would like to be able to do with the work itself, like with form or with language or with... Um, thought in the form of the poem or something or um, I think it's good to be you know remain highly ambitious with with the writing itself but in regards to like publishing industry in scare quotes or the poetry world I think I'm pretty low ambition (laughs) low (laughs) expectation Um, I don't know like I said maybe that's just lazy but Um, I guess I was, I mean, I was lucky in that, you know, Cordite have in their ambit the kind of, I can't think of a better word than than mission statement, but that's not really what I want to 
say the directive um one of the things they do is try and seek out and publish you know um, debut collections of poets so they offer that opportunity and yeah it was fortuitous to you know I, I don't want to discount or the the um the good fortune to have a publisher be interested in my work but in my case it was more a case of saying would you like to publish a book and me saying yes but I couldn't possibly at the moment and then just taking my sweet time mm. <laughs> for several uh, more years after that I mean uh, yeah I was doing other things I was finishing a PhD which now seems small but in the years that I was doing it occupied occupied a lot of time and thought and probably did did undoubtedly produce poems and produce interests and produce occupations that led to the writing of poems that's not really advice is it I mean I feel like uh for me I I did find it and maybe this is just what happens with first collections like it didn't come to me clearly as a book um and maybe that's also the nature of my the way I write, which is sort of bitsy, line by line, disjunctive, scrappy, collaged, I don't know, like, um, so I sort of sent my publisher a big pile of poems and then um, Kent, you know, was able to suggest a sequence and then I adjusted that sequence and wrote more into it in the editing and et cetera, et cetera. But that's sort of how it came to go from being yeah a stack of poems to a book the fact that it sort of took me so long meant that to me it seemed like there was there were obvious differences in style and tone and concern from kind of earlier poems compared to late poems and there were some questions about whether or not they all sat together but I think I hope we found a way to make that work. Yeah, I was amazed at the tonal like consistency of the book because I started looking up where some of these poems first appeared. The one towards the end, Notebook 4, is part of a sequence that's published in Cordite in 2012. Basic Hut Methodology first appeared in 2013 and there is just the tiniest change in there, just the tiny little changes with some of the other ones too. Yeah, and it, I mean, I they seem they that. they seem different to me, but maybe that is a good directive for whatever the next book is that there needs to be a <laughs> the, the 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 challenge for me then is moving on from whatever the voice is in this book, the style and the tone. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe that's a, that'd be a fun challenge. Yeah, um, for sure, because that was also definitely a concern at times for me that. That there'll be two um, the same. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That there was a consistency in a mode. There was a way in which I would be like, oh mm. yeah, this is an this is an Ella O'Keefe poem. Looks like you're writing an Ella O'Keefe poem and you are. <laughs> but you are Ella O'Keefe. <laughs> so that's important. No, I didn't I didn't feel that sense that sometimes you get of like an exhaustion, like, oh my god, every single one of these poems is the same. But I was amazed to sort of look back and go, oh my god. She was writing this in 2012 and had already achieved this like ability to kind of, like you said, the collage, the juxtaposition, disjuncture, disjunctive mode. Yeah. 
that was a cool word. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was a real achievement. Yeah, I think, but I think there's definitely, I think, it, again, as as I keep underscoring, I'm not, I don't do these things quickly, but um, maybe there's challenges to to consider in terms of being more experimental with form or length or those kinds of things. Like it's not, I, I sort of envy those books where there's able, where poets are kind of able to move between, you know, different poetic forms. Um, I don't think, I don't think this book does that as much. So, but that's, you know, that's okay. Life is long and there's, yeah. <laughs> there's more time to keep writing, we hope, if we're lucky. Yeah. Would you like to take us out with a final poem, any at all? Your cat's on the recording studio. Ah. <laughs> oh, my God. She's being so Sweet annoying man. right now. Could you get off? Okay, I think she's fine. Yeah, any, any old poem. Any poem at all. Sure. I'm going to read this one. I don't think I read this at the launch. Oh, I cool. can't remember. It was all a blur. About our usual comport. Have you heard that one? Doesn't, I don't doesn't think remember. you did read this one. Okay. This is a... I think this, this was written also last year. It was when... I mean, she hasn't gone away, but Pauline Hansen was having, was having a resurgence on our television screens. That was... That was the that was the well of anger that inspired the <laughs> need to write this poem <clears throat> about our usual comport. Trolled by cranks fixated on reenactment fanfic, the branch of pusillanimous girlhood that truly deserves a revenge fantasy. Pauline pushes the daisy trolley. Of course, the wheels aren't true. They've been lurking in the sun and burned to the touch willing to tear polyester flounces from a hot number. Crimes too numerous in your snubbed sweetheart neck burn down the ground floor of an estuarine nest egg, ladling chlorinated venom into a warming vat, performing miserable hauntings of poolside caftans. Diaphanous hatred lowered, soft focus on evening's blare. Do you pay your publicist from the same account? Soap becomes sparse, not enough to cover our bodies, Hers are shaped like seahorses, match the stage towels. The common man banter is sour pageantry, punctuating fortnightly visits to liquid nails. We expel air and crack joints, passing bird sounds, screed, screed, public pleas to cease pre-rinsing so the multinational might measure out water to the most deserving. Surveying the Tropic of Hatred, there's an intractable slippage between conserve and enclose. Now we can call up the ocean's listing. All functions are luxuries extended. Enjoy is a command. Pistolier shoots a contract through the assembly, the way violence is indicated in comic books. Warring without mirror phases, non-believers can suck it while you dine on the nectar of rectitude. Writing is easy in montage. You dissect small talk in a tepid, repressed sort of way. Clockwise rotations divest the hills of their meaning. We need to return the dynamite. Read that how you wish. <laughs> <laughs>